Good morning. Welcome to Good Ancestors and Local Treasures with Corinne Pierce. Sintamana, Ana Pikabitam Day. I am your host, Keshi Corinne Pierce. I'm a local Pomo basket weaver, traditional artist, an herbalist, dancer, storyteller, and cultural educator with ancestry from Lake and Mendocino County tribes. Thank you for joining me this morning to take a closer look at some of the people, places, and events that make our community so rich and wonderful. First of all, I want to say happy Pride Month, and thank you for joining me. I'm, I'm excited to introduce my guests to you today. I'll be joined today by... Cheg Lowry, I hope I said that right. I practiced, but um, he will correct me if I'm wrong. And Rebecca Lowry, two amazing artists, culture bearers, and cultural innovators. I'm really honored to have them today as my guests. Um, I want to apologize before I sh start my show. I'm actually um, getting over COVID, so I sound a little breathless to myself. Um, and I apologize if it sounds crazy to you. But before we get to my amazing guests this morning, I want to share some facts and a little bit of history with you today about Native folks that you might not be aware of. On the heels of Memorial Day, I want to share with you some statistics related to the proud history of Native Americans and military service that you might not know about. This subject is close to my heart and home. Every generation of my family has served in the military since World War I. As a reminder to everyone listening, Native Americans were not granted citizenship until June 4th of 1924. So it hasn't even been 100 years. It's been 98 years. Um, and did you know, to this day, American Indians serve in the armed forces at a higher rate than any other demographic? Since 9-11, nearly 19% of Native Americans has ser have served in the armed forces compared to an average of 14% of all other ethnicities. This is a well-known fact discussed and celebrated in Native homes and communities all over the United States, but a subject I'm not sure is known about in our wider community. <clears throat> Growing up in my home, in a place of prominence, there were two beautiful professional photographs of my great-uncle and my great-grandfather, who were actually both cavalry in World War I and in World War II. 
they were their official military pictures. And I can actually imagine them now. They were beautiful sepia-toned photos of two handsome and proud Native men. They were surrounded by an American flag and an eagle. It was very majestic. <laughs> uh, my family has proudly served in every branch of the military for generations, and I'm pretty certain that my seven-year-old nephew is counting the days until he can enlist. I was raised in a community that celebrated our veterans in many ways at what felt like every gathering I attended. I'm very proud that my community celebrates and continues to celebrate our warriors, both male and female. I'm going to share some statistics with you that I got from the Native Council on Aging. From, um, this is from November 2019 that I feel should be well known. Uh, mind you, these statistics are likely to be updated soon due to the more recent census, um, but this is what they had to say, and I really am excited to share this with you. American Indians and Alaska Natives served in the armed forces at five times the national average and have served with distinction in every major conflict for over 200 years. Considering the population of the U.S. is approximately 1.4% native and the military is 1.7% native, not including those that did not disclose their identity. Native people have the highest per capita involvement in any population to serve in the U.S. military. They also have a higher concentration of women service members than all other groups. Nearly 20% of American Indians and Alaska Native service members were women, while 15.6% of all other service members were women. During World War I, during World War I 3,000 to 6,000 Americans enlisted, and another 6,500 were drafted. About two-thirds served in the infantry, winning widespread praise for bravery and achievement, but the cost was high. About 5% of American Indian combat soldiers were killed, compared to 1% of American forces overall. Back in the States, some 10,000 American Indian women joined the Red Cross, and my great-auntie was one of them, donating time, money, and clothing. American Indian people also bought war bonds. By the war's end in November 1918, they owned $25 million in bonds, about $75 for every American Indian man, woman, and child. During World War I and World War II, a variety of American Indian languages were used to send secret military messages, codes that enemies were never able to break. In World War I, Choctaw and other American Indians transmitted coded messages by telephone in their tribal languages. Although not used extensively, the telephone squads were key in helping the U.S. win several battles that ended the war. American Indians enlisted in overwhelming numbers after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Just like in World War II, the Army used American Indian recruiters to find native language speakers who were willing to enlist. The Marine Corps recruited Navajo code talkers in 1942 and even established a code talking school. 44,000 of a total American Indian population of 350,000 saw active duty, including nearly 800 women. For this service, they earned at least 71 Air Medals, 
31 or 34 distinguished flying crosses, 51 silver stars, 47 bronze stars, and five medals of honor. Approximately 10,000 American Indian soldiers fought during the Korean War, and around 194 died in battle. During the Vietnam War, of the 42,000 American Indians who served, 90% were volunteers. Approximately one of every four eligible American Indian people served, compared to one of 12 in the general population. Of those, 226 died in action, and five received the Medal of Honor. And there were a couple of those, actually a few of those from our town, from Ukiah, who, from Redwood Valley, from Hopland, from Coyote Valley, um, who, who died in service. Since the Gulf War, the U.S. has been engaged in an ongoing series of conflicts. American Indian men and women continue to serve in high numbers at home and abroad. According to the Department of Defense, more than 24,000 of the 1.2 million current active duty service members are American Indian. And the 2010 census identified over 150,000 American Indian and Alaskan Native veterans. Sadly, American Indian and Alaskan Native veterans have lower incomes, lower education attainment, and higher unemployment than veterans of other races. They are also more likely to lack health insurance and have a disability, service-connected or otherwise, than veterans of other races. About 19% of American Indians and Alaska Native veterans had service-connected disability rating in 2010, compared with 16% of veterans for all other races, according to the Department of Defense. To date, 27 American Indians have been awarded the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest military honor. American Indians have participated in every major U.S. military encounter from the Revolutionary War to today's conflicts. Um, the National Native American Veterans Memorial opened November 11, 2020, on the grounds of the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. This tribute to Native heroes recognizes, for the first time on a national scale, the enduring and distinguished service of Native Americans in every branch of the U.S. military. Sorry that gets me choked up. And also part of COVID, which nobody told me about, was it makes me really emotional. Um, so that is something that I really wanted to share with everybody. I wanted to share these statistics because, like I said, these are really well known. Um, and while I was writing uh, my notes for the show, I was actually contacted by an elder in Lake County and they were looking, um, we were looking to find veterans to honor it at something that they're doing over there. So I was reminded that this is something that everybody should know about. And I'm, I'm super excited to move on to my guest. I went a little bit over on my time, but that doesn't take away from their time at all. Um, so my first guest is Chegg Lowry and he um, is an amazing artist and I'm actually not going to do much introduction about him but I'm going to let him introduce himself. Um, welcome. Thank you very much Green, uh, for uh, having me and my beautiful wife Rebecca on your program. Uh, it's an honor and uh, good morning to everybody out there. Uh, I really I you're not the only one that got choked up as you were sharing about the veteran service. Uh, Rebecca's dad, Len, 
half is uh, was in the Marine Corps. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of family members in the service as well. On my mom, Sandra's side, I'm of Iraq ancestry from the uh, Northwest Coast. And then on my father, Ike's side, I am Mountain Maidu and Pit River ancestry. So I was born and raised in Susanville on the Susanville Indian Rancheria. And uh, growing up as a young guy, I, a little guy, we had all Native veteran reunions in Susanville every year. And those were very impactful in my life uh, because I got to observe my uh, late grandfather and his generation um, who were all the World War II generation. And I got to have the privilege of being raised around them and observing them. And so a lot of my life's work uh, at this point has been to try to respectfully uh, document and help uh, California Native veterans convey their histories and stories. And today is actually a very significant day as it's June 6th. And it's the 78th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, uh, World War II. And, you know, D-Day in American history is a pretty significant event. It's taught in all of our schools. Uh, but I have been thinking about three of the Maidu uh, elders who I had the privilege of knowing and interviewing for uh, one of my books, uh, the late Johnny Smith, who was uh, raised in and lived in Greenville, California, uh, Mountain Maidu. Uh, he was in the 82nd Airborne Division and parachuted behind enemy lines on D-Day. And my cousin, the late John Peconum, who was Mountain Maidu, uh, went ashore in the second wave on Utah Beach on D-Day. And then a good family friend, uh, the late Leland Washoe from Greenville, went ashore on Omaha Beach on D-Day. And it's important for us to know these individual histories and stories. And uh, the way that I appreciate how uh, Rebecca's curriculum that she creates uh, on uh, about our books and the uh, comic and the graphic novels that I've uh, written is uh, her curriculum helps convey these uh, histories and stories in a way that young people and students, I think, will have an emotional response. And I think for young people in schools, uh, if you don't have an emotional response to the imagery or the books or what the teacher is saying, it becomes hard to feel included in the discussion. And it becomes a challenge, I think, to feel a part of the history of this place, of our people, of our country. And so I very much appreciate that I've been able to talk with and interview and learn from uh, many generations of California Native veterans. Uh, 
you mentioned uh, the uh, World War One experience, and you know I had two great great uncles, uh, Iraq, who served in World War One, and who uh, were uh, fortunately came back, and and you know they did it, and they were not U.S. citizens, right? And that's a powerful uh, point. Uh, I think right now in this country there's a intense uh, conversation around citizenship and what does that mean to be a citizen and as native people you know we are citizens of native nations and american citizens as well and a lot of people have asked me over the years well why why such a high service rate among american indians in the united states military knowing the history that the very recent history especially here in california just uh two or three generations ago uh you know our people were being uh massacred by uh militias and the u.s military and so when i was a little boy going to veteran day and memorial day parades in susanville and watching my grandpa and his brother Leonard Lowry and a lot of their cousins, you know, walk down Main Street and be very proud holding the American flag. It was always confusing for me. And so that's why I, I chose to uh, go to school at Humboldt State University. Uh, I got my undergrad degree in journalism because I wanted to uh, learn the the ways to ask questions and uh, also incorporate uh, the teachings that I uh, received in how to listen. The indigenous way to listen is different. It's unique. It's powerful. And then, uh, you know, when Rebecca and I met and uh, we've been able to work together uh, for um, know the our entire time together in different education projects and history projects and i've learned that in order for other people outside of our indigenous communities to kind of understand or get an awareness of our people our culture our connection to these places uh, it is a very important step to have uh, curriculum and I appreciate the fact that we also need to have indigenous teachers right we need indigenous administrators we need those perspectives that represent our cultural lens uh, within the education system most of the native veterans that I spoke with the World War II Korea and even some of the Vietnam generation, you know, they all went to boarding schools, right? So education has been weaponized against our Native people since day one, which is uh, a very hard concept to convey and teach about, uh, because again, you're going back to the emotions. Um, and I think the power of uh, also being able to work with and learn from indigenous artists, for me, has been 
you know, the way that I look at it is, okay, as humans, we are intensely emotional beings. And Native people are, are you know, we're very emotional, just like any other group. Uh, the power of our artists and our basket weavers uh, that they have, because they have special connections to our homelands, is they are able to create tangible uh, art or baskets or whatever they create. And those are tangible representations of uh, pathways to, um, I guess, handling our emotions, uh, coming to terms with our emotions. And so that's why growing up, I was privileged to be around a lot of basket weavers. You know, I was raised in a cradle board um, and a Yurok basket. And so when I uh, became older, I thought about the concept of creating a comic book uh, because comics are pop culture. And as indigenous people, we deserve to be in pop culture, just like anyone else. But I wanted to write a story from the perspective of the basket, because in especially on my mom's side, we're taught that if a basket is used in ceremony or a basket cap is used in ceremony, they are then considered living members of our society. You know, they're not meant to be in museums. They're meant to be in our homes and in our ceremonies and in our everyday life as much as possible. So I always thought about, wow, what if the baskets could tell the story? They do tell a story, right? Every stitch, every weave conveys something precious and powerful. And so I thought to use the comic uh, format, and I worked with a very talented artist. Her name is Washoyo Alvatre. She is of Tongva indigenous ancestry. The Tongva people are the original people from the LA, Long Beach area. And she and I worked and created the basket comic called My Sisters. And then what Rebecca was able to bring was she took, you know, our imagery and the dialogue and she crafted some very beautiful uh, curriculum. Uh, and I know, you know, she'll be able to talk about that. So it was really, you know, the three of us. Uh, kind of working together and thinking together. Uh, the first comic that I uh, chose to write is a graphic novel called Soldiers Unknown. It's 120 pages. I worked with an artist named Rasan Ekadal. And Rasan is not native, but he was born and raised in Southern Humboldt. So he knew how to draw. He's a powerful artist. Uh, so he knew how to draw the river systems, you know, and the place. And so we at least spent a little over three years crafting the Soldiers Unknown World War One story, which is historical fiction. It's based on three Yurok cousins who are drafted into the United States Army, and they go into the uh, 91st Infantry Division, which was the real division in the Meuse-Argonne, uh, battle, which was a real battle. The Meuse Argonne, which occurred, started in September of uh, 1918, remains the United States Army's largest battle ever fought. Uh, they were fighting it all the way up until uh, um, for at least over a month. 
uh, you know, and the war ended November 11, 1918. But the first uh, man to die in combat in that battle from Susanville was a Maidu man named Thomas Tucker. And in real life, he, he died on the second day of the Musargon battle. And as a little boy, my grandpa would tell me, Chake, you need to always remember Thomas Tucker's name and that he was from here and that he gave his life uh, for our people and our country. And so that always stuck with me. And the VFW post in Susanville is named the Thomas Tucker Post. So it is one of the few uh, VFW posts in the country that is named after a Native American veteran, the Thomas Tucker Post. So I chose to go into graphic novels and comics because there's a lot of power in color imagery. I appreciate that you shared about your families, the photos on the wall that were sepia toned, you know, and a lot of our veteran photos are black and white or sepia. And I wanted to convey this World War One story in full color because our people are still here. Uh, color represents a vibrancy, you know, it represents a lot of connections, you know, we have significant colors in all of our are all of our cultures that mean something. And so I'm very much uh, enjoying uh, and appreciative of the comic book format right now as I uh, continue to craft stories. And all of my stories are based on, you know, my, my own life experience raised on a reservation uh, around multiple different indigenous cultures and having had the privilege of working with many, many Native elders uh, from uh, many tribes, uh, but then in particular, the veteran experience. And I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, all of our veterans uh, in our families and that pride of service, which you know, I'm very proud of it, and I know, you know, all of our Native people are. I was in Fort Bidwell this past weekend, I had the privilege of being invited up there in Modoc County and speaking at a veteran uh, event. And there is a lot of pride. And then there, if you go deeper, and this is what artists allow us to do, right? And basket weavers allow us to do, and poets allow us to do as humans. They allow us to go deeper uh, into those stories and histories where the emotions are, where the pain or sorrow or pride or happiness reside. And we have all those emotions within our families uh, because of the veteran experience. And, you know, there's the positive and then there's also the, there's sorrow, there's loss, there's agony and pain that I don't know that we have been able to uh, fully unearth and heal from in many of our communities uh, because, you know, the oppression of mainstream American society, which has marginalized our stories or, you know, chosen not to uh, allow our people to, you know, speak freely about who we are, what we've done, why we are unique in this area. 
but it always goes back to the artists, the language speakers, the basket weavers, the regalia makers, the traditional dancers, the poets, the speakers, you know, people like yourself, you know, who carry that good medicine uh, and, and facilitate our stories being told in a public way, especially. I really feel like our Native veterans and our the families of Native veterans uh, both deserve and need to do that more. We need to be sharing more about that experience and how it has impacted our people and our communities and how it continues to impact our people and our communities. It's not, you know, just in a book. It's it, that emotion uh, ripples through all of our communities uh, in many different ways. And, you know, I'm very excited because I know Rebecca is here next, you know, to listen to her. Uh, her poetry has always been very healing for me, you know, when she shares it. And, you know, I just uh, am very appreciative, uh, Kareen, of you uh, as a basket weaver and as, you know, here on the radio station. You know, it wasn't that long ago when, you know, our people were targeted for having knowledge, right? And it was considered dangerous. And sometimes it still is considered dangerous for us as Indigenous people to be out in the open in public and actually talking about who we are and, you know, our ancestral ties to our homelands. We don't have the privilege to just do that, right? There's so much emotion that every individual, we all have it. And so I thank you for having that good medicine and that uh that basket weaver courage. That's what I think of it. It's, you know, the basket weavers are all are out there. You're out there day in, day out on the land amongst the people. And so thank you. And uh, I look forward to hearing from Rebecca now. Yeah, we thank you so much. Um, I just want to let you know, and, I, and I, I did send this to you in a message before, but I got your book. I ordered it from Amazon, and uh, I hope they don't hear this, but they accidentally sent me six instead of one. So I was super stoked. And my my daughter, is uh, she's a manga enthusiast so she reads japanese comics all that's all i can get her to read and so when she saw yours she's like oh i'm gonna read that what i couldn't believe that so that opened up conversation with her um my family came to my house on easter and my mom sat down and read the entire thing and i messaged you and i said my mom loves this book <laughs> and it was it was really amazing so um i want you to be able to tell people where you can find that book you can order it on amazon if you have a website um sure thank you uh they can order it directly from uh great oak press they can go you can google search that or on amazon uh the yurok tribes uh chapek Visitor Center also has it. And then Northtown Books in Arcata and Eureka Books in Eureka, they can go online and purchase it there. 
Yeah, I really, I really recommend it. And I don't have those extra five that they gave me anymore because they handed them out to classrooms in our middle school. Um, I just, I really wish that's what I love to do. I love to get these books that are true representation and pass them on. So I'm, I'm always grateful to find an amazing artist, an amazing writer. Um, thank you so much for being here. You are listening to Good Ancestors and Local Treasures with Corinne Pierce. Uh, we just finished talking with Chegg Lowry, and um, we are about to speak to his wife. And I want to um, let you know that we are live streaming on kzyx.org, and it's KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits, and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Welcome, Rebecca. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love talking to basket weavers and educators and poets, and I have a thing for artists. So I'm so excited to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Um, my name is Rebecca Lowry, and I'm a citizen of the Delaware Tribe of Indians, which is headquartered in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. My father, Len Half, was born in Oklahoma, and he was the first in his family to attend college. He became a mathematician and raised uh, myself and my four brothers um, here in California. So our traditional homeland um, is called Lenape Hawking, which is along the Delaware River on the East Coast in the areas uh, now known as New York City, um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Lenape Hawking, our homeland, was the place where the United States was conceived, where it was thought of. We were the first contact with the colonists, and we are part of the first indigenous diaspora. Um, we endured many uh, forced relocations and different um, Ohio, Indiana, Missouri, Kansas, and eventually Oklahoma, which was Indian, ter ter Indian territory when we eventually ended up there. It wasn't even a state yet. And so I descend from survivors. I descend from very uh, strong matriarchs that, you know, kept the culture, uh, kept knowledge. They kept our, our language. We have our languages has been beautifully kept and shared um the, and documented and still taught in oklahoma um and our people kept plant medicine and um even though i did did not was not fortunate enough to grow up in uh, my ancestral homelands or um the place of my father's birth in north, northeastern oklahoma where many of our people you know are buried and our family cemeteries are um i was raised with you know a strong sense of who i was and these wonderful stories that taught me how strong and resilient we are. And, and one of those stories I was told over and over again had to um, dealt with plant medicine. And it instilled this awe in me of plant medicine and the power of those plants when they're used by traditional practitioners, you know, who, who are using them in, in very specific ways, in very ancient ways, in ways that aren't you know, taught in books in ways that you can't find online there. They're, they're taught in ancient ways. And so I am a poet, and uh, poetry is one of the ways that I celebrate the 
the stories that are in my family history. Um, it's also a way that I process, you know, relationships with people, with place. And so I think uh, um, I'll begin with sharing this poem, since I was just talking about my father, that deals with um, the, this story that my father would tell me growing up. Um, this story, uh, this is called Plant Medicine. Our people never lost plant medicine. Forest extended from New York to the edge of Oklahoma. We gathered along the way in the right way, made an Eastern hole and an offering. Touched the plant as delicately as the patient. Lil Creek did just that to save my dad's life. 1940, Ketchum, Oklahoma. Delivered by a veterinarian, born 40 years old, sick and starving, till the wild grape, till the elderberry, till the prayers of Lil Creek. Knowledge kept, knowledge shared, so the babies may live, so the children of the babies and their babies may live. I'm happy to announce that in my middle age, <laughs> I, after taking a break from writing poetry during, you know, a period of my life, you know, I, I've started writing poems again in the last few years, and I'm having four of my poems published in an anthology the Brooklyn Public Library is putting out um, this month. It's um, in connection with an exhibition that I participated in called Lenape Hawking. Um, this was the first exhibition of Lenape cultural arts curated by a Lenape person, which is really astounding. And it speaks to how long it takes for people to reclaim their voice and to reclaim um, certain positions of power and disrupt hierarchies of power because other people love to tell our stories for us. And that's a way of infantilizing uh, a culture and, a, a, and disempowering a people. So I was re really excited to be a part of that. Um, the, the, my, it'll be in the digital um, portion of the library online, and there'll also be a hard copy. Um, that'll be announced soon on their website. Um, I was very um, fortunate to participate in um, a feather weaving project. So a very common garment that was a uh, uh, prolific um, before contact among Eastern people, tribal peoples, Southeastern people, um, was the feather cape. Feather capes are very practical. In particular, our people um, use the turkey feather um, because, you know, it's water resistant. It was strong, um, durable. Um, and then there were different kinds of capes. There are capes that were fancier than other capes that were um, had ceremonial use, um, some uses for certain um, social status, and then there were kind of like everyday warmth-type capes. But I began thinking about the feather cape a few years ago when I started writing 
um, stories um, based on some old stories within my people. And I um, have always been interested in weaving because um, I was very fortunate when I first moved to Humboldt County and uh, met my husband, Shay, about 25 years ago. I um, was taught the Yurok style of twine weaving by Susan Burdick. And I was very fortunate to be accepted into the class, not being a California native, you know, not being married into a family or really a part of the community yet, just being kind of a person who had just moved there. And it, um, it taught me how, uh, what an awesome responsibility it is when you are a weaver and you're a culture bearer and you make the decision of who you teach. It is quite the responsibility because you ultimately, in a way, carry some weight in the responsibility of how they use that knowledge. And so you want to pick people who you know are going to use that knowledge in the culturally correct way. And, you know, it's very serious. And I was very honored to be a part of that and to learn how to gather those materials. So I was in awe of all the, you know, weavers and Chegg's family. There was just that incredibly beautiful fine weaving. So I, I learned how to gather those materials and I learned how to do the twine weaving. And, um, and there was something that always stuck with me. I think when you, when you learn how to do that, you know, the memories in your muscle memory. And um, when I um, first decided to um, do the feather weaving, I did a little bit of preliminary research and I learned that, you know, it was the twine weaving that, that was used, but there's, there were no handbooks on how do you make a feather cape, right? Because <laughs> it is the, 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 the knowledge was lost. That was one of the traditions that in during the forced relocations could not be um, continued because it, it takes so many resources and dynamic social relationships in certain places. And it's, it's a very, it's a lot of labor. It takes about a year to make in the traditional method. And, um, but it was, it felt very inspired um, to make this feather cape um, as it, I felt like it represented the return of a lot of uh, matriarchal roles across this continent. I think there's this return of the respect for the matriarchy and the special roles. And the feather cape is just such a regal, beautiful item. I felt like it represented that. And so I was very fortunate that my mother-in-law, Sandra Lowry, um, got involved. And, and she's an amazing regalia maker, has been making ceremonial dresses for uh, the brush dance ceremonies um, for 30 years. Those are the dresses the the young women wear when they participate in a ceremony that um, promotes the healing of a young child or an infant. And so when I told her um, the idea that was presented to me that perhaps I should make a feather cape for this exhibition, she just jumped right on it and she was completely excited and it was just meant to be. And I mean, I didn't know how she was going to react. I knew I couldn't do it alone. I, I needed to have um, her guidance and that it was too overwhelming to do alone. And we were in a little bit of a time crunch. It was kind of a last minute idea that we only had a couple of months to make it, but it was one of those things that, that was meant to be. She felt like she was meant to make this feather cape with me. And, um, and, you know, it was a beautiful experience because partly because we knew how to twine, we knew how to make regalia, make things in a good way, in a prayerful, thoughtful way. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't know the method. So there was this kind of surrender to a cultural process and surrender to a creative process. We didn't have many preconceived ideas. There was a picture of a beautiful turkey feather cape that's at the Pequot Museum that we, you know, so we had an idea aesthetically of like how it hung. 
but we pretty much just trusted the creative and cultural process. And so that was um, exhibited at the museum through April and it inspired a lot of people. It was presented with some older bandolier bags. So those are the bags that the men wear. They're um, very elaborate, beautiful beaded bags. So there was, um, you know, there's a balance of kind of masculine and feminine um, in the exhibit. It was really beautifully exhibited by um, tribal member Joe Baker. Um, and so when I finished the Feather Cape project, I, I wrote this poem that I'm going to share with you. And, you know, to me, it represents um, the, how powerful human intention can be. We, um, when cultural items return to us, um, first there's this intention, and then there's this um, kind of a movement or a type of spiritual journey that the life force of um, the cultural item takes and then and then it manifests materially and so in this poem that i'm sharing i i, I try to kind of convey that movement in the creative process so this poem is called feather cape returns what shells are to water feathers are to air like the lovely turkey feather, move in wind and water. Light sends waves of color, quiet collisions, radiation. What is bronze in morning will be blue by three. Two. If feathers were integers, her back is broad, one size of infinity moves across, her back is broad. Tail feathers flip up and down in wind, her back is broad. Small plumage pairs up by size and quill. Ratty feathers fall, mistakes cut out. Her spine pushes up like a quill. Three. A cape hung over a branch in Lenape Hawking, raised by a strange wind, flew west across the expanse before landing on a cliff at Requa. The mouth of the Klamath River below pushed into the Pacific Ocean. Cape made a U-turn in that foggy breath, circumventing columns of mist. Picked up Dentilium before traveling back east, waiting a line of bandolier bags. Feather Cape, they said, we saved you a spot. Rejoining their company, they spoke all night. Oh, so, that was beautiful. I don't want to interrupt. But man, I'm sitting here with <laughs> tears in my eyes. That was really beautiful. Like, I feel that way a lot of times about baskets, that they're already there. You know, I've heard mm -hmm. sculptors say that they, they reveal something that's in the stone. I feel that way. And that was really beautiful. So I want to say thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I'll try not to interrupt anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Manishi. So um, I am also a clinical social worker. My husband and I got um, and I got pregnant with my first son. And, and after our first son, my husband's like, 
maybe you should go back to school, <laughs> graduate school and get your MSW. And then I was like, huh, okay, maybe I should. <laughs> and so I, I did that. And um, so I am a clinical social worker. Um, you know, I've taken breaks from, from it from time to time and raising children and doing other projects. Um, but I'm returning to that right now. I've been very, um, for, um, and I incorporate those principles of uh, social work and um, teaching social and emotional skills and mental health skills to use in um, a lot of the curriculum projects I do. So yeah, Chig mentioned we've been doing curriculum projects together for about 25 years. It started a long time ago when we did the curriculum for the gold rush, the sesquicentennial celebration of the gold rush. Everyone was celebrating. And so we did an exhibit based on interviews of local elders um, to teach um, the indigenous perspective of that time period. Because <laughs> everyone just wanted to pan for gold and, you know, wear old timey clothes. So that was our first project together. I've been very honored and very humbled that I was allowed to um create these guides these teacher guides and uh, the curriculum projects for chig's books which are based on the knowledge and lives you know of many elders and, and you know the cultural knowledge he was raised with i feel very honored to be a part of it the most the curriculum guides are free they can be found on the blue lake rancheria website um, under chig chag lowry l-o-w-r-y pathmakers page and um, you, you'll have the you know it'll have the book and then it'll have a little button for the curriculum guide that you can access for free that my curriculum is based on what's commonly called right now a growth mindset um, which is focuses on the concept that our young people are not broken they're unfinished um, we want to teach them coping skills to use while growing um, we want them to develop more, you know, self-awareness of their own roots um, and a relationship with those roots and also the place that they live and what is their particular responsibility to that place. I incorporate a lot of creative writing and poetry writing exercises into the curriculum because I think it helps um, make history human. So I encourage the the student to put themselves in the shoes of the historical character and maybe write, you know, sequels or alternative endings to Chig's books. For example, in the Follow the Water comic about um, Ishii, um, the, the, there was a, the concept of Ishii's sister being missing um, because Ishii wasn't the last of his people. There, there, there were other survivors that were incorporated, you know, into other Pit River bands. Um, but what happened to Ishi's sister? Like, how did she survive? And what were her coping skills? And so really imagining, um, you know, that survival mode and the re resourcefulness of the indigenous women and what they had to do to survive those um, intense times of massacre and, and cultural disruption. What did they do? How did they survive? They, they did survive because the people still exist. They are not extinct. And then the other activities in the curriculum focus on community building. So make um, giving young people a structure to really connect with older generations and what's a, a good cultural protocol to interact with those elders, which Chig developed in his master's thesis was a protocol for, you know, interacting and collecting stories with elders and, and doing it in, you know, the, a culturally correct way where you're not you know, it's it, the knowledge belongs to the family. You're not you're not like taking the knowledge from them, but you're you know building a relationship. And then how do you share the lessons of those life stories 
with others in the community and make meaning out of it. You know, young people are exposed to so much information in our, you know, information overload technology day and age. So helping young people construct a meaning basically and make sense <laughs> out of all this information is what I focus on in the curriculum too. There's, um, I'm going to read to you the beginning of, um, the unfinished basket curriculum that has been used uh, is being used right now quite successfully. Um, this is the most popular curriculum unit, so I'll share a little bit about that one. But it's, it is uh, a company's the My Sister's Comic, developed by Chagan Moshoya, and it is had been used with success by the Humboldt County Juvenile Hall and also um, a public school teacher in Los Angeles and also the tribal court system in Klamath. Um, but it, it, it helps the young people identify some strengths and some goals using the basket as a metaphor for their growth. And they also are able to share a spoken word poem called My Basket, which describes their strengths and their goals in life. And um, it's been very successful. It's been used with enthusiasm. So I'm just happy to share that, that the curriculum is being used. <laughs> Yay. Thank you so much. I, um, it's the end of the school year here and I'm getting ready for next school year and I'm absolutely going to be checking that out and spreading it around to everybody. I want to say thank you so much to both of you for being here. Um, and before I turn the music on and head out the door, I, I do want to point out something that you said about that exhibit being curated by an indigenous person. Um, I just, there's an exhibit over in Mendocino right now. Um, we are still here, we are here. That was Mio Marufo, Eric Wilder, and Bonnie Lockhart. And it's 2022, and this is the first time that that has happened in Mendocino County. And I'm also going to be doing, I'm curating an exhibit um, that's going to be from July through October in Lake County. And that's also the first time that that's happened. I mean, it's 2022 and we are finally being able to, to show people what we see through our lens mm -hmm. without the white view editing what we want to be seen. So I want to say thank you so much for being here. Um, it was a great honor and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.